and I'm preaching, usually the elders get a chance once a year or so to, uh, to come up here and bring the message. The pastors were traveling this week. It seemed like a good time for, uh, for one of us to step in, and it was my turn. And actually, I haven't done this in, uh, in quite a while. I had last year uh, as a break from being on the, on the elder team, and so I actually haven't done it since 2014, so I might be rusty. Sorry. I might be. I'm not saying I am. I'm just saying I might be rusty. Plus, I'm going to try using the clicker today. So, oh, it's going to be, you know, <laughs> that's the good stuff, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so I'm, really, I'm really happy to have this opportunity to, uh, to preach from, uh, from the book of Genesis as we continue our series. But like I said, I might be rusty, so uh, let's pray to start and uh, get ourselves in the right spot. Um, God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the fact that you are our rescuer. And, uh, and that you are strong, and that you care about us. And when we find ourselves in predicaments like, like Lot will today, um, that you don't just leave us there, but that you uh, care about us, and that you want uh, to rescue us, that you want us to be back with you where we belong. So thank you for that. I pray that um, that, that message would shine through this morning as we read. pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so like I said, we're kind of in the middle of a series on the book of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible, and we've been um, talking about a whole bunch of stuff already so far. So you're coming in um, in, uh, in the middle. We've already been through creation, Adam and Eve, the fall. We've talked about Noah, the flood, Tower of Babel. And now we're meeting one of the key characters uh, in the book of Genesis, and that's Abram, who will later, later be renamed Abraham. Those are the same guy. We're learning about him, about his family. And really what this is all about is learning about the family that's going to give rise in hundreds and thousands of years to Jesus Christ. These are his ancestors. These are the people in his family just long, long, long time before he was born. And like Chris and Spencer have said uh, in previous sermons, um, these people in the book of Genesis who are his ancestors, they resemble Jesus. If you've ever, um, my mom is great at this, dug through archives and looked for family photos of you know, your, your ancestors from like the late 1800s, early 1900s, and you see these you know, really stern people um, and you're like, wow, that looks exactly like my brother, just with mutton chops or something like that. And it's kind of the same way. Like, they probably physically resembled Jesus in some way because they, you know, literally were his ancestors. But in a bigger way, they prefigure Jesus in some of the things they do, the way they act, the things that they do. Their actions um, are a little bit like what Jesus will ultimately do and accomplish in his life. And this is all designed. This is all by design. God is the orchestrator of all of history. So why wouldn't he weave in these clues and these secrets about what his ultimate plan of salvation is using the people that he has chosen to work through? So that's what we're going to see this week. So this week, we're going to be talking about Abram. We're going to be talking about his nephew Lot and something really, really crazy that that goes down um, between them. So um, this sermon is going to be titled The Warrior King. We're, We're reading from Genesis 14, 1 through 16. So To begin, let's read the whole passage in full, um, and then we'll go from there. So I I could only print part of it in your your insert, so some of it's just going to be on screen, but there's going to be a lot of names, so get ready. This, This beginning part is a lot, a lot, a lot of awesome, awesome names. Okay. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketaleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goliam, these kings made war. With Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. Following so far, right? Okay. 
And all these combined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, 12 years they had served Ketileomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Ketileomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveth, Shaveh Kirathaim, almost got it, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to El Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. So I didn't put that in your, in your insert, so you can read back if you need to review those names. Then, this is where it gets really interesting, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Ketileomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, that's tar pits. And as the kings of Gomor Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. When one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So, wow. This is like, <laughs> if you're following along, which maybe you are, maybe you aren't, because there's, like I said, lots of names. This is like an episode of Game of Thrones, crossed up with the movie Taken, crossed up with the movie 300. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. There's some really amazing stuff in here. It's got family drama to set up what's happening in the story. It's got action. It's got revenge. It's got tar pits. I mean, it's all the, the main key elements of a great summer blockbuster are here in this passage in Genesis. I mean, this would make an awesome movie, but Let's go back just for a minute to try to unpack and parse out all these names and places uh, a minute to figure out what exactly is happening. So I got a map, and I got a laser pointer now. So this is going to be great. So, okay, this shaded area right here is often referred to as the Fertile Crescent. So there's, in the midst of a lot of desert, like this is all desert, this is all desert down here in Egypt, there's this area called the Fertile Crescent. So there's these rivers, Tigris and Euphrates rivers that flow into the Persian Gulf. There's this strip of land which is going to become Israel. It's called Canaan. This is all really good, fertile land, good for growing crops, just a really good place to live as opposed to much of the surrounding area, which is really desolate desert. And so this is some much-desired land. And Abram, if you remember from a few weeks ago, he used to live way over here in the land of Ur by these rivers, and God told him, I want you to move to a different area, and he moved probably taking this the long way instead of going across this desert, taking the long way over, and he's now over here um, in what will become Israel. But he used to live far to the east, and he made that long journey. Now, in today's passage, these kings, Ketileomer and his guys, they're from back here. They're from back east. Here's Elam right here. It says Ketileomer was the king of Elam. So these guys are kind of from back where Abram used to live. And now they've, they've kind of expanded. And it sounds like 
Ketileomer ruled almost all of this fertile crescent somehow. Not Egypt, but at least from here where Abram is, all the way back to Elam. He's got some kind of a mini empire set up. Now, there aren't really real nations at this time. I mean, this is like ancient history. And you, you hear, like, we've got a list of nine kings in this main battle, but then there's these other kings, too. So everybody's a king. Hey, everybody's going to be a king. I've got a little group of people. You've got to call me king. I'm not just the leader. I'm a king. So there's all these little alliances going on, and Ketileomer has alliances, or maybe it's more like he's a gangster, and he's ruling all of these areas, but he's ruling from way back in Elam. And he's demanding that these people kind of pay him off. So we heard that he ruled over all these people for a time. He's probably demanding that they pay him off or that they send him supplies or, or whatever. He's in charge, but he lives far away. And it says that he ruled all of this land for 12 years, and then in the 13th year is when this cabal of kings rebelled, and it probably just meant they stopped paying. So maybe they hadn't seen him for a while, and he's like, he lives all the way over in Elam. Let's just stop. Let's just stop. Let's just not pay him anymore. Not, not, not be ruled by him. So they quit paying their dues. But soon, Ketileomer decides, that's enough. I'm, I'm going to take back that land. I'm going to punish these rebels. And so he gets three kings that are loyal to him. The four of them get together, and they head west. And the five kings from the west combine their forces eventually, and they're going to have a big battle. So just in case you forgot, Ketileomer, Amraphel, Ariok, and Tidal, they're the east guys. Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Samember, and the other guy, they're from the West. And he doesn't even get his name in there. And he's got two, two names for his country and none for himself. So they're, they're going to throw down. These guys are going to fight. These guys eventually. Okay, this is the zoom in. This is the zoom in of the area where all this happens. So, so here come Ketileomer and his guys. They come from up here because remember they went around the horn. They're coming down. They're coming down. They're coming down. They're fighting all these guys over here. Ham, all these guys. They're, they're fighting Sodom and Gomorrah are right down here. So first, this is kind of cool, that the big army passes by them to the east, but they don't fight them yet. So Sodom and Gomorrah are like, oh man, did you see, like on the other side of the hill, there's this huge army of four kings. They passed us. They go south, they do some fighting down here off the map, and then they come back. And this is the Valley of Sidim right here, just due south of the Dead Sea. So that's where everybody comes together. There's this huge fight. People are falling into tar pits. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, take off. They flee. It's just nasty. And it's interesting that specifically the king of Sodom and Gomorrah are called out. as like they, they ran away. <laughs> the battle was bad. They ran away. Some of their guys fell in the tar pits. I mean, this is their home turf, too. This is their home court. They're falling in the tar pits. They should know where those are. But they lose. They lose bad. And after the battle, Ketileomer and his guys, then they go to Sodom. Then they go to Gomorrah. Probably most of the fighting guys are gone, killed in the battle. Most of the people that are left are the older folks, the kids, the women, and he just sacks the place. So he takes all their stuff, takes a bunch of the people, and takes them as slaves, and then he heads off. And when he heads off, he comes around this way, and he's heading back home up this side, and he's going to go out that way. So that's kind of what's going on. Now, Lot was living in Sodom. In Sodom. We heard that he and Abram had split. Abram had said, look, we're both getting pretty successful. We both have a lot of flocks, and there's really not enough land. So why don't you pick one area to go settle in, and I'll pick the other way, and we'll just both prosper. And we find out here that 
Lot found himself actually living inside the city um, of Sodom, which is, uh, is kind of interesting. So he gets taken captive, his people get taken captive, um, and, and they head off. And it's at that point that someone escapes from Sodom and knows enough, probably used to be with Abram because he's one of Lot's guys, makes it to Abram and says, your nephew Lot got captured by these guys from back east, and he took, they took all his stuff. They took him. They took his family. They're slaves now, and they're, and they're leaving. So Abram pulls together his guys. It says he's got 318. So maybe it's not like 300. He's got, he's got a lot more guys. And they head up. They head up this way. They're chasing them down, and they, they get way up here before they catch up with them, and that's when Abram has his plan. He's like, well, they have, a, they have the army combined forces of four kings, but he's got 318 guys. His plan is sneak up at night, split his force in half, attack him in the middle of the night, and he wins. And he chases him away. Those guys flee. He gets all the people back. He gets all the stuff back and brings them back home. That's basically the story that we're hearing today in a nutshell. Um, so Lot, like I said, was living in Sodom. The king that he was under the protection of the king of Sodom, is the guy that ran away from the battle and forsakes all the people. Doesn't go back to warn, like, everybody get out of town, they're coming, they're going to, no, no, no. He just runs away, and the worst possible thing for the city of Sodom does, in fact, happen. So, like Highland was saying, Lot, Lot made a pretty bad choice in hindsight, settling in the land of Sodom. We've heard before that Sodom is not a good place, the people that live there are evil. And it's funny, I always think it's funny, in Genesis, early on, they always say, like, and there's this city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this is before they were completely destroyed by God. So just in case. So you're spoiling it for us. But, you know, we know that those cities are going to be judged and just destroyed later on. Lot, of course, doesn't know that. But that's where he is. And the evil king that he is under the protection of has just forsaken him and run away. And he gets himself into this predicament. So where I want to go today, now that we've sort of understood the story and unpacked it a little bit, where I want to go today is talking about this story in, in two sides. We've done this in Genesis and other places a few times to talk about the narrative of the story and the theology of the story. We talk about it in the, the human side of it and then the divine side of it. If you want to think about it like here's the history of what happened and what we can learn and what it means and then here's the theology of that exact same thing and we can kind of line them up over each other and, uh, and get a picture of Abram, the ancestor of Jesus, and then Jesus himself later on. Um, and understand how that works. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start out by talking about the human side, and we're going to talk about three important things that I think we can learn about Abram from looking at this passage here this morning. So the first thing is that Abram is a father figure. He's a father figure in this passage. In verse 14, Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, and he led forth his trained men, born in his house, and, and chased after him. So Abram hears that his nephew, his kinsman, is in big trouble. Big trouble. He feels responsibility for Lot's well-being. We saw it demonstrated last week, too. Like I said, Abram is gracious to his nephew. He understands that, if you want to call it, this town ain't big enough for the two of us, but in, in a good way, not in a bad way, where he's saying, look, Lot, I want the best for you. I want the best for you. I don't want you to have to be fighting for territory and fighting for grazing pasture for your, for your flocks. I want you to prosper just as I want myself to prosper. And so I want you to find a, a place, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you first pick. That is gracious in the, in the way that he offered that to Lot. 
like a father figure wants the best for his ward. He wants him to prosper. So here, in this passage, Abram goes to great lengths to help his family, acting like the father that Lot no longer has. We learned early on when Lot was introduced, when they kind of spread, you know, laid out, here's all the people in, in Abram's family. We talked about Lot, and it said Lot's father died, and Abram kind of took him in. So Lot doesn't have a birth father anymore. Abram fills that role for him. So we learn from this passage, Abram is acting like a father figure to his kinsmen, to Lot, and to the rest of Lot's family as well. And the second thing about Abram is that he's a warrior. That, that's what I think would be so great about a movie based on this passage is to get a really old dude to be this warrior guy to go off and fight. Because um, he's, he's old, but he's, he's a warrior in this passage. He's taking these 318 men. He divides his forces against the enemy by night, and he defeats them, and he chases them away. It's some really awesome warrior imagery that we get from, from this really old Abram in this passage. So he's got guys that, he's, that have been trained to fight. It says he's got 318 trained fighters. So it could be that this isn't the, his first rodeo as far as having to fight for his uh, interests go. I mean, he maybe is fighting for land in Canaan already. Maybe there are raiding parties that come in and try to take his stuff, and he's, he's seen that he needs to have some of his servants trained to fight. Um, but also, I mean, he's got this tactical savvy about him. Like, he has to chase all the way up, all the way up north, and then make a plan and execute that plan and succeed at that plan and then chase the enemies away so they don't, like, regroup. And re- yeah. I mean, he's good. He's really good. He's got this tactical savvy about him um, in, in the way that he is acting like a warrior here. So that's another thing that we can learn about Abram is how he, he acts like a warrior. And then the last thing about Abram, we're kind of flying through these because I want to spend more time on the, on the divine side. Abram is a functional king here. He's a functional king. So Abram is not only looking after the interests of Lot by only rescuing him, like sneak in at night and like tap him on the shoulder, Lot, it's me. I don't have a lot of guys, so just come on. Come on. No, 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 no. He's not just rescuing him. He rescues everybody who was taken captive. He takes back all the possessions. These are the possessions of the people of Sodom. And he takes back all the other people, not just Lot's family, but all the people, the, the people of Sodom. Not his town, but the people of Sodom. I mean, Abram is doing what the real, actual king of Sodom either couldn't do or wouldn't do. Abram is the guy who says, my women and children and old folks from, from my city have been taken captive, and I'm going to go get them and bring them back. I'm doing it. That's what a good king would do. And the king of Sodom fails at that. He's the one that's stuck in a tar pit for a while and eventually makes his way out. He survived that battle. We'll find out next week. Abram arrives back after his victory. We'll hear about this in the sermon next week. But Abram gets back. He's got all the people and all the stuff. And then the king of Sodom appears. And he's like, oh, thank you for bringing back the people and stuff. And I'll pay you. <laughs> and Abram's like, no thanks. I don't want to preach on it because that's someone else's. But... Um, it's pretty it's pretty funny to me like Abram gets back and there's this big celebration and then the king of Sodom like slinks in he's like thank you for helping with that Um, so Abram I mean he's almost acting like the king of Sodom this wicked city the city that he doesn't want to associate with he's not he doesn't have a horse in this race he doesn't care about these kings he was never supposed to be paying these kings off he's not part of any of that but he's acting like a functional king 
for these people in this instance. He brought back all the possessions. He brought back his kinsmen, Lot, his possessions, the women, the people. Abram did it. Abram won. Abram's acting like a king, a functional king. But Abram is not Lot's birth father, right? We covered that. I mean, he's family, but he's not Lot's birth father. In fact, Abram has no kids of his own, no birth kids of his own. His wife, Sarai, uh, is barren. We've learned this. Now, we, we know that later on, God has promised that he will have an heir, he will have a son, and it will happen later. But right now, Abram has no kids of his own. He is not a literal father to anyone. But he's acting like a father. He cares enough to put himself in harm's way to save Lot, who's his ward, who he still feels in, to be in charge of, but he's not his birth father. Abram is not technically a warrior. Seems like he's pretty good at it, but like I said, he's, he's elderly. Maybe his guys are doing most of the work for him. I mean, if you really want to define what his vocation is at this point, it would be something like wealthy farmer businessman. He's got servants, he's got flocks, says he's wealthy. He's probably doing a lot of trading. He's concerned for keeping these animals and camels and just kind of doing business in the region. And he's, do, and he's good at doing business, but he's not, he's not in charge of a literal army or anything. But when he has to, he will. He takes on the role of a warrior in order to rescue his family members from slavery and from harm. But he's not literally a warrior. He's an old business guy. And he's not a king. He doesn't, he doesn't have a country. There is no country of Israel at this point. Um, later on, if you read throughout the Bible, they talk about um, Israel as being like the children of Abraham, and that, that will literally be true. But at this point, he doesn't have a country. He, he's sort of a wanderer, and he's set up camp in this area, and then he'll set up camp in this area. Um, he doesn't have a country. He will. He will have a real country and a real family um, and all that, but he doesn't right now. But he's acting like a king. He's acting like a functional king. He's marching into battle. He's freeing these people from oppression. He's returning them to their homes, things that a good king would do. But he's not any, any of these things. He's not a real father. He's not a real warrior. He's not a real king. But he's acting like that in this story. So if this story, and I think it's incredibly cinematic and cool and action-packed, if this story um, is awesome and it's, the central character is a guy who's not really a father, not really a warrior, not really a king, what would the story look like if there was a character sort of like Abram but who was literally a true father, literally a true warrior, and literally a true king. What kind of a character would that be? And what kind of cool and compelling and cinematic story would we get from a character like that? We don't have to actually imagine that. Maybe I've been telegraphing this to you really well, or maybe not. But we don't have to imagine what that story is like, because that is literally our story. We are part of that exact story. And that's the divine side of this passage. God is our heavenly father. That is literally true. God, just like Abram, watched as we, his children, struck out in a sinful place, got embroiled in that mess, found ourselves enslaved to sin. Just like Lot is 
hanging around Sodom and eventually moves into Sodom and then eventually finds himself in big trouble because of his association with being in Sodom. Think about Adam and Eve, right? When we read Genesis 3, the story of the fall, and we just like kind of drop in and Adam and Eve are standing around the one tree that they're not supposed to eat from. They can eat from all the other trees in the garden, but they're standing around, like standing around the one tree. Why are they even nearby that tree? They should, they should stay as far away from that tree as they possibly can. It's the one thing they shouldn't eat from. But there they are. They're both just kind of like standing around looking at it. Just like Lot is like, well, maybe I could move into Sodom. Well, maybe I should camp near it. Well, it looks nice. and Maybe I should move into it. You know, it's that kind of thing of watching us as a heavenly father, seeing that happening. James 1 says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, we are lured and enticed by sin that looks good, but it enslaves us, and it brings death. It says elsewhere in Romans, in a verse that you might know, the wages, the paycheck that you get for sin is death. And this is the kind of thing that Lot is, is doing. He's being lured closer and closer and eventually into a city of sin and finding himself just s- stuck in this mess. And eventually, it leads to him being made a slave by these foreign kings. Slavery is an image that we see throughout Scripture Slavery, we'll see in the book of Exodus when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and God uses Moses to bring them out of that slavery. And actually, the land of Elam, where that Ketileomer king comes from, that is the area where Babylon will eventually be a major player in the ancient world. And there's a time when Babylon comes to Israel and makes slaves, carries all the people off as slaves. Slavery is a big image. And slavery to sin is another image that we see elsewhere and we're going to read about in a bunch of places today. But like Paul says another place in Romans, when he's talking about sin in his own life, he says, like, I don't know what I'm doing sometimes. It's like, I, I don't do the things I want to do, and then the things I don't want to do, that's the stuff that I keep on doing. And he's wrestling with this. And that kind of term of saying, like, there are things I want to do, but I don't. And the things that I do want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. That sounds like slavery. Sounds like someone is ordering you to do something against your will, but you have to do it. That's what slavery is, right? When we've given ourselves over to sin, when we've made ourselves a slave to sin, the thought, the temptation enters our head, and we immediately leap up to obey and comply, to obey that sinful desire like we're a slave to it. Like a slave to an evil master, we serve sin, and we're paid, we're paid in death. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? So if you present yourself to sin as an obedient slave, you'll be made a slave and it will lead to death. But God is a good heavenly father. He knew where we were, just like Abram knew where Lot was. God knew that we were enslaved to sin. And he wasn't just going to let us languish there forever. God cared about us. He cared about the fact that we were enslaved to sin. 
Matthew 6, this is a passage about worry, where Jesus is saying, you should, if you're a child of God, you shouldn't worry about anything. Listen to what he says here. Look at the birds of the air. They, na- they neither sow nor reap nor, ga- nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So Jesus is saying, look, we have a heavenly Father. He feeds the birds. They don't set up farms to grow their food, but they, they're always around because they're always finding things to eat. God is feeding them, and the birds are not called God's children. They're great, but they're not made in God's image. We are called God's children. How much more, if he provides for birds, will he provide for us and take care of us? God cares about his kids. When we see our children, those of us who are parents, in harm's way or in trouble, we intervene. I mean, even if we're trying not to be helicopter parents, and we're like, well, let's just see how it plays out, and he'll learn. I mean, that's fine too, but there's a, there's a point to where you're like, okay, 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 I'm going to have to step in before you die. That's, that's the line. I mean, I'll, I'll let you get hurt and learn your lesson, but I'm not going to let you die. That's just not in, my, not in my DNA. God cares about his children, and he's going to help them. Even those of you who have kids who have grown and moved out of the house, do you not still care about their well-being? Do you not still care about how they're doing? Even though that they're, you're not in charge of them anymore, you still care. God is our heavenly father. He knows our state of slavery, and he knows what we need. What do we need? We need Jesus. We need a mighty warrior. We need a real and true warrior to save us. Jesus sees us in bondage to sin and death, and he acts. He doesn't just get the message. What if Abram got the message, you know, and said, that's a bummer. That's a real bummer. I'll make sure those, di- those guys don't come for me. No, 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 no. He acts. He gets his guys together and he goes. And that's what Jesus does. He comes to save us. Listen to this from Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's Abram. Jesus has a battle plan. Just like Abram got together and made a battle plan, Jesus had a battle plan. He would take on flesh and blood, become a human like us, and he would pay the wages of sin back to the evil master, the devil, who entices us and lures us and tempts us to sin. Jesus will destroy the devil. He will destroy death itself. He will destroy our sin. And when that's done, look at verse 15. He'll deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to this lifelong slavery to sin. He values his people and he will act. He has acted on our behalf. He helps the offspring of Abraham. That's Abram. So he helps the literal children of Abraham. He helps us. And like we said, we're more valuable than birds who get fed every day. We're more valuable than angels. It's not angels that he helps. He didn't die for the sins of the angels. He died for our sins. That is the kind of warrior that he is. Now, Psalm 68 is a great psalm. It's kind of long, but it's, it has a lot of imagery about victory, about our Lord being a victorious warrior. And I really want to read the whole thing, but I don't have time. So, homework. Psalm 68, this week, you should read it. It's really good. But I want to read a few verses. Verse 1, and then we'll skip down towards the end. Listen to this. God shall arise 
His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. And then 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed is the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. So it says he leads captives in his train. Just like Abram. Imagine Abram coming back from that battle with all these people following behind him who have been saved. And Abram receives gifts. We'll hear about that next week. He receives gifts and blessing. Just like this beforehand picture of Jesus says. What I really like about this passage is look at verse 19. Blessed is the Lord who daily bears us up, who daily delivers us from our sin. Daily. When we continue to sin, he continues to deliver us. Daily. Daily. And he's the only one who can do it. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. He owns the patent on deliverances from death. He's the only one. Lot does not fight his way out of captivity. He doesn't do it. He can't do it. He's got all these four, four kings worth of armies around him. He can't fight his way out. There's no way. To God the Lord belong deliverances from death. And Isaiah is a great place to go for prophecies about Jesus as well. Isaiah 42 talks about, again, beforehand, before Jesus is even born, talks about what kind of a man he's going to be. Is he going to be a quiet, respectful person? Yes. Is he going to be a mighty warrior? Yes. Listen to the beginning of 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. This is written about Jesus. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift, his, lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So here's a picture of Jesus willingly doing these things, being gentle, being quiet. You read, you read the account of Jesus under trial and he will not speak. He's re, he is focused on going to the cross and he will not speak. He will not speak up for himself and defend himself and say, no, I don't deserve it. This is a picture of that. But then read later on in this very same chapter. Listen to this. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. There's two sides to it. Like a man of war, he cries out and shouts aloud. Do you see Jesus the warrior taking on your sin like that? Stirring up his zeal against it? What does it look like when Jesus shows himself to be a mighty man against his foes? Looks like that. Looks like that. Jesus hanging bloody on a cross and yelling and screaming out in pain. This is the battleground for our Savior to save us from our slavery to sin. When he cries out, it is finished, he's crying out, now you can be free. Your slavery is finished. I have fought for you, and I have won your freedom. And so, Jesus, or God is our Heavenly Father. Jesus is a mighty warrior, and Jesus is the King of kings. Abram was a functional king. Jesus is the King 
of kings. This ancient world where everybody's running around and calling themselves a king, there's nine kings fighting. And there's more kings that are being defeated that we didn't even talk much about. There's kings everywhere. Jesus is the king of all kings. We see this in Revelation. We see a picture of Jesus as a warrior and as a king, a picture of a final battle that will take place between the forces of the devil and the forces of Jesus Christ. The final defeat of the devil, the final defeat of the architect of our slavery. Listen to this amazing picture. I'm just going to read a few verses from Revelation 19. This is a picture of Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood from the cross. And by the name, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress and the fury and the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw the beast, that's the devil, and the kings of the earth, kings like Cataleomer and those guys, with their armies, gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So the devil and his troops, kings of the earth, it says, marshal their forces against Jesus that's verse 19. Is there a verse missing right here? They gathered to make war against him, and the beast was captured. Where's the part where Jesus and the devil like meet in the center of the battlefield, and they have to go one-on-one -on -one in a duel to the death? Where is that verse? It does not exist because it's not a fair fight. There is no fight. The story of this passage is there's a giant battle, but Jesus is there, and it's over. They're not equals. He's the king of kings. There is no equal. And he wins every single time. Every single time. He wins on the cross. He wins in the last battle. He wins our freedom from slavery, and he brings his children back home. Every time. He daily bears us up. That is our Savior. That is our heavenly Father. That is our mighty warrior. That is the King of kings who cares about us, who will not let us stay in a state of slavery, who has come to fight on our behalf. So as we close, I have three things that I want you to take with you today. First of all, see sin as slavery. Maybe that's easy for you. Maybe you struggle with a sin where as soon as the thought enters your head, you are immediately obedient to that temptation. There is no fight left. Maybe that's you. That is slavery. See it as that. Call it out as that. Don't see it as some sort of employment where you're getting some sort of return on it because there is none. The return is death. The wages of sin is death. When you see that temptation and you immediately jump into it, whether it's pornography or feeling prideful over other people or hating someone 
or getting in the habit of lying because it makes you look better, if those things just come second nature to you and you just jump at them as soon as the thought enters your head, see that as what it is. Slavery to sin and death as your payment. But look at the cross. See your warrior king sent by your heavenly father to fight for you, to win your freedom. He has no equal. There is no one who can oppose him. There is no sin that is too big for him to defeat and kill in your life. At the cross, he won your freedom. And that happened 2,000 years ago. It's done. He has won it. And so lastly, live in light of that victory. Believe that he has won it for you. Believe it. If you're not a Christian yet, come to the cross and cut ties with your old master, which is sin. Cut ties. You are free based on the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So cut ties with your old master. Let Jesus free you from that sin that he's already defeated. That work is done. So leave it behind. And if you are already a believer, live in light of that victory by not going back to your old master, by not submitting to that yoke of slavery again. If you're a believer, your old master is dead. He's not given orders anymore. You have a new person in your heart who wants the best for you, not death, but life. So don't follow those old commands. They're still echoing in your head, right? They're still echoing in your head, but you are under no obligation to follow them if you are a believer. Your Savior is alive. He loves you. He died on a bloody cross for you. He fought that battle for you. He won that freedom for you. And he shares that victory with you in life eternal with him. That is our God. That is the one who does the work for us and frees us from the slavery to sin. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for freeing us. Thank you for caring. Thank you for calling us your children when we are foolish, when we leave you for things that look better. Thank you for fighting on our behalf, for being the king of kings, mighty in war against our sin. I pray that we would leave that sin behind. Whatever it is that's weighing on us today that came into our heads and said, yeah, that thing is an evil master. That thing has control over me in a way that is horrible to think about. But thank you that you are strong and that when we feel that weight, when we feel hopeless, you are strong. You have no equal When you enter the fight on our behalf, the fight is over before it begins. Thank you for that. I thank you that you love us like that, that you love us that much, that you love us to the cross. So I pray that we would worship in light of the victory that we see with the empty cross, the empty tomb, and you on your throne in heaven, loving us. Praise in your name. Amen. Amen. You can... uh...